If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a very special chapter. Why? Because when Satan tempts Messiah, how does Messiah answer? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. If Deuteronomy chapter 8 puts, puts Messiah on top and puts Satan in his place, then that makes it special. The very end of verse 3 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, which the Lord quoted in Matthew 4.4. 4. When Satan said, hey, why don't you worship me? And the Lord said, ah, you know better than that. So verse 4 we pick up, it says, Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. He's talking about the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. What's the wilderness? Desert. It's hot. It's sandy. How many have walked along the beach in the sand? It's, it's easier to walk on a hard surface than a sandy surface like that. Well, they've walked for 40 years, and it says their garments did not wear out. How many of you are wearing the same clothes you wore 40 years ago? Yeah, I don't think so. Not only that, but it says your foot did not swell these 40 years. It swelled or even blistered. They didn't even get blisters. How many of you would walk in sandals for 40 years and not get a blister? It means the shoes still fit 40 years later. They're still serviceable. Can you say a miracle of God? That's exactly what it is, a miracle of God. And Moses' point is, of course, that God did not bring you out into the wilderness and abandon you. He has been with you each and every day. Despite the fact, how has Israel treated God for those 40 years? They've been not very faithful, have they? And yet God has not abandoned them. He has fed them. He's watered them. He's protected them from enemies. And in verse 5 it says, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. When they would rebel against God, God would bring judgment upon him. For what purpose? To punish him because he's mad? Or to bring him to repentance? To bring him back on the right track so that he can bless them? Does God bless you when you're walking in disobedience and rebellion? No, so God would chasten them and bring them back so that he could bless them once more. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. The Bible says a lot about chastening from the Lord. Any of you who have children, you know that sometimes the children need a little bit of, oh, shall we say, attitude adjustment. That doesn't mean you love them any less, does it? No. So Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, meaning chastening has had no effect. He's not been willing to change the attitude and repent and come back to his mother and father. Verse 19, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. 
and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him with, to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. They tell me in the commentaries, and commentaries from of old, that this section was never used. Of course, nobody ever had their children put to death. But it's there as a warning to us all, for we are God's children. And when we rebel against God, he chastens us. And we can respond to the chastening one of two ways, right? We can repent and turn back to God, or we can harden our hearts and turn away. If we harden our hearts and turn away, what then? Then do we end up, end up in the lake of fire? We end up out of God's love and care? That's why this is here to warn us. God gives us human relationships to help us understand things that are just too high for us to understand otherwise. So just as a father doesn't want to put his son to death, he wants his father to repent and to come back and re-enter that loving relationship, that's what God wants. He doesn't want that any should perish. He wants us all to repent. Give me one verse in scripture where God says that. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll pretend I heard that. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Come on, 2 Peter chapter 3. I know you're in there. There you go. Verse 3. No, verse 9. <laughs> he was right. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's his desire. He wants us all to repent and come back to him so that he can bless us beyond measure. What's the first word of verse 10? But, however, however, it means the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Judgment day will come. It has to because God promised it. And if God promises it, what will he do? He will deliver on it. So let me throw out this question to you. Is it better to repent before judgment day or after? Before, because before, what does it do if you repent? If you repent now, God will be just and forgive you and restore you and bless you. If you wait until judgment day, what good does it do you? Answers none. Scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. But you'll either do it now when it's effective or when it's too late. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. This is the Lord speaking. Speaking to David about Solomon. 
And in verse 14 it says, I will be his father. This is God talking to Solomon. And he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Did Solomon commit iniquity? He did. How did God chasten him? The kingdom was taken from his son, at least 10 of the 12 tribes, right? The kingdom was divided. Most of the tribes went to the north, and in the south remained only two, two tribes, which were what? Judah and Benjamin. Oh, that's, that's a big chastening. Let's go to the book of Job. Book of Job. Chapter 33. Verse 19. Did you notice that the fact that God chases you doesn't mean he stops loving you? Did you notice that from the words to Solomon? The one whom he loves, he chastens, the scripture says. If he didn't love you, would he care whether you repented or not? He just lets you go on off to perdition if you wanted to. But he does care. He does love you. He does want you to repent. So in Job 33, it's verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. Yeah, I want you to see this because sometimes when we have pain, when we have sickness, when we have illness or injury, it's because of our sin. But what did I say? What was that first word? Sometimes. It's wrong to say anytime somebody suffers, it's because they're a great sinner. Remember when they asked Messiah who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? What was the answer? Neither. Neither. So when you see somebody suffering, if you just jump in on them and say, you must be a great sinner, you need to repent and turn back to God, you could be wrong. But there are times that you ought to think, you know, I've been suffering here for a while and I just can't seem to get over it. I wonder if God's trying to teach me something. That's when you look in your own heart. Before you start worrying about the specks in your brother's eye, look at the planks in your own. And if you can honestly look at your life and say, nope, I can't see where it's God chastening me. Well, we live in a fallen world. And bad things happen, even to good people. What did Paul complain about? What about his eyes? Yeah, he had problems with his eyes. How come God didn't just reach down and heal him? God's the one that gave it to him. Yeah, God's the one that gave it to him. What if uh, God allows me to be experienced whatever I've experienced in order that I can understand what somebody else might be going through yeah. Their similar experiences so that I can have compassion for them. Yeah. Or sometimes injury or illness changes our path and takes us to a path where we should be walking instead of where we were. I can look back over my life and see how God was bringing me back to the path to come to the ministry when I might not have otherwise wanted to do that. How many of you just love to get up in front of people and talk? 
Not me. Yes, ma'am. God doesn't cause all illness. God does not cause all illness. You're absolutely correct. Uh huh. And and he can use that for chastening and, and teaching us, but I don't I don't understand. I don't think he causes every bad thing that happens. He does not cause every bad thing that happens. Did God cause the bad things that happened to Job? We're in the book of Job. Answer is no. Satan did. He allowed it. But he didn't cause it. Sometimes we suffer because of the actions of others. Yeah. But I can think of a case where a, a couple lost a child. He died not too long after birth. And the people in the church just gathered up on him and said, this is God's judgment on you guys because you're such sinners. You think that brought them closer to God? Let's go on to Psalm chapter 6. Yeah. We've got to be careful when we pull out the God's judging you stick. Sometimes it's pointed the wrong way. <laughs> psalm chapter 6, verse 1, it's a psalm of David. Don't you love the psalms of David? It says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. It does not say, Lord, don't chasten me. It says, cool down a little first, then beat me with the rod. And that's always a, a good prayer. It said, if, if I've really been wrong, as David was really wrong, God, let your anger settle a little first, then chasten me if you don't mind. Psalm 38, verse 1. Psalm 38, verse 1. What do you know? It's a psalm of David. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Wait a minute. That's the same thing as said in Psalm 6. Why would David intersperse this periodically throughout the Psalms? <laughs> made a good intro verse. Made a good intro verse, and it was good to remind God that, hey, we are just sinful people. We're trying. That's a good example for parents, too. It is a good example for parents. Don't beat the kid when you're really angry. No, settle down first. Have a cool head. And maybe the punishment will fit the crime. <laughs> Psalm 118. Oh, Psalm 118. This was being sung when Messiah died. Psalm 118, verse 18. Messiah says, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. How had Messiah himself been chastened? Had he been whipped with the whips of the Romans? Had he had the crown of thorns shoved upon his head? He's been nailed to the tree. Well, what does it mean he has not given me over to death? Does that mean Messiah did not die? No, it means that Messiah did not stay in the grave. Why did God chasten Messiah? Because he took our sins upon him. He took our chastening. So it's not that God didn't chasten for those sins. It's that he took that chastening for us. Even to the point of death, 
But then came the resurrection. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Let's look in the New Testament for a few minutes. Revelation 19 verse 18. We'll start in 17 for context. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Is that chastening? No. What were the seven years of the tribulation period? Those were the chastenings. These people now that are dying are those who refuse to repent despite the chastening of the Lord. And if we went all the way back to Deuteronomy 21, what was the outcome for a child who absolutely refused to repent despite the chastening? Was death. So I want you to know God never brings death without giving opportunities for repentance. How many times did God chasten during the seven-year tribulation period? Be more specific. Well, seven seals, seven bowls. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, 21 times. And did they repent or did they shake their fist in the face of God? Ah. So let's go back to Proverbs. Proverbs. What was my point in Revelation? God chastens, but not forever. There comes a point where you've made your decision. In the tribulation period, it's when you take the mark of the beast, you've made your choice. Prior to that, repentance is always available. Proverbs 19. Let's go to verse 18. Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. That's the heart of God. Does God want to destroy anyone? No. What does he want everyone to do? Said 2 Peter chapter 3. He wants everyone to repent. So the same that is true of any parent is going to be true of God. He doesn't want to throw people in the lake of fire. You've got to work really hard to get thrown in the lake of fire. You have to reject every chastening the Lord sends. You need to reject every opportunity for salvation. For God will try again and again and again to reach you. It's only when you've resigned yourself, you're not going to repent. You're not going to turn. That you need to really worry. Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Verse 16. 
Lord, in trouble they have visited you. That trouble we might call chastening. When God brought chastening, some turned back to you. It says they poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. That's God's desire, is that you turn, that you repent. And notice verses 19 to 21 in the same chapter are the verses on the rapture and the resurrection. The closer we come to the rapture and the resurrection, the more chastening God's going to pour out. How does God chasten the world? Anybody see any famines coming? Any droughts? Any floods? Pestilence? Earthquakes? War? Those things are God trying to get our attention. And notice verse 16. Does it say, Lord, when they're nice and comfortable, they have visited you? Or does it say, in trouble, they have visited you? They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, what do those birth pangs teach us about? The tribulation period. But what comes before the birth pains? Verse 16, the chastening. God's call to repentance. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 30. At what point does Jeremiah write? The northern kingdom of Israel is gone. They went into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE and they haven't come out yet today. The southern kingdom of Babylon has begun to, the southern kingdom of Judah has begun to go into captivity in Babylon. They went in three waves. Jeremiah writes after the captivities, the waves of captivity have begun. And he says in verse 30, in vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. What chastening is God describing here? He sent prophet after prophet to, to cry repentance. And he sent invading armies. He sent crop failures. And the prophets would say, this is because of your sin, O Israel. Turn and repent and turn to the Lord. But verse 30, in vain I have chased your children, they receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Meaning what happened to the prophets God sent? What did the people do? They killed them. Rather than repenting, they killed the prophets so they wouldn't have to hear it anymore. Why do you think God sent them into captivity? Because nothing else had worked up to that point. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 32. Verse 32 explains why chastening comes. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that 
we may not be condemned with the world. Meaning God chastens us so that we might do what? Repent and come back to him because he does not want us to be condemned with the world. Yes, ma'am. Um, I probably said this before, but maybe you could just go over it again. Um, because people, with so much prophecy coming up now, so many people prophesying now, and yes, we see some not true and some true. Um, how does one actually discern when people say you have to listen to the prophets just like of old? How do I respond? I say nonsense. If I hear a prophet that's truly been sent by the Lord, I will listen. But the myriad of prophets I hear prophesying today, I don't hear them coming from the Lord. The message is not what the Lord would send. Every prophet the Lord sent prophesied repentance and turning back to God. The prophets of today prophesy great prosperity is coming. President Trump will get reelected. Okay. I try to tell people that, that you don't have to listen anymore, but they still look at me like I'm dishonoring the office. And I, I just, it, it is scary when people just, you trust and you think that they're, they're good people, and yet they look at prophets like it's some kind of holy office. And, and yet I say, you have to look what the scriptures say. Yep. That beware in the last days of the prophet. Yep. This body, the scripture says, test the spirits. And it also says, judge a teacher or a prophet by their works. When they're not following after God, they're not keeping God's commandments, they're not preaching repentance, then I, I really have no use for them. And they're always false prophets. And what? There've always been false prophets. There've always been false prophets. Somebody in GoToMeeting Land said, Wayne, who was that? Yeah, Edmund. Hey, Edmund. Um, a thought that's really struck me recently is that Jesus never announced himself. And he says, if I speak on my own account, my testimony is not valid. So I have come to the conclusion that if a person announces themselves as a prophet in this day and age, I, I walk very carefully. I look for other things outside of him to right. confirm that, not what he says of himself. Right. I'm aware that there may be exceptions, but That's... as a general rule, if Jesus can say, if I speak on my own account, my testimony is not, is not true, then I think I, in all humility, need to, uh, uh, you know, that must be true of human beings. Yep. I agree with you, Evan. Thank you for adding that. Because the prophets and old gave specific prophecies. The prophecies of old gave specific prophecies. They came to pass. Yeah. And these are vague. And if they don't come to pass, really? they're not true prophets. Really? I've heard people today say, I prophesied in 1982 that there would be shortages of rain at some point in time. <laughs> and you look at it and go, that's not a prophecy. Anybody can, can look at the scriptures and say such things. And I've lost people out of here, you guys know, who said, I am a true prophet of God. 15% of what I say comes to pass. 
15%. What does the Bible say? A true prophet will be accurate how much? 100%. When I said that, the response was, well, God told me to ignore those verses. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, okay. Back on, back on track. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. Verses 5 to 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Quote, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, meaning our human fathers, for a few days chastened us to seem best to them. But he, that is the Lord, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Paul's warning is, be careful how we respond to chastening. When the Lord chastens because we're doing something wrong and we don't want to let go of it, let go of it. Repent, turn back to God, accept the chastening, and realize that he's trying to lead you back to a solid relationship, a solid foundation of righteousness and holiness. And without holiness, comma, what? No one will see God, yeah. Revelation 3.19. Revelation 3.19. Hmm. This is really interesting. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and what? Repent. What tickles me is in my Bible here, the printers have said that Paul is quoting from Revelation 3.19. Yeah, which would be interesting, but Revelation was written 30 years after Paul died. <laughs> So Paul is not quoting Revelation. It simply is the same sentiment that God's trying to get across to us from multiple authors. Why doesn't God just tell us something once and then assume we all got it? Because we don't get it. That's right. Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Lest we forget where we came from. We're up to verse 6. Verse 6 says, therefore, what does therefore mean? Because the one whom God loves, he chastens. 
Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a therefore. Ah. He says, do you not want to be chastened? Then don't sin. God doesn't chasten us for sport. God chastens us when we're starting to get off the path. What would the shepherds do when the sheep would start to wander off the path? Smack them, that's right. They had that little rod to say, get back on the right path. So Moses says, you don't want to be chastened? Don't leave the path. Verse 7-4, because the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. How many have noticed that the Jewish tradition is to say a blessing to the Lord after the meal? Mm -hmm. If you've been to a Passover Seder, we call it what? The Birkat Hamazon. That's the blessing after the meal. It's based upon this verse. God says, when you have eaten and are full, you have eaten from the goodness that the Lord provided. How can you not then bless him for it? Does that mean that the blessing has to be after the meal? No, I don't think so. But that's a literal interpretation of this. When the Lord blesses you, thank him for it. One of the great failings of the northern kingdom after the two kingdoms split is when God would send bountiful harvests. The people would be so grateful they would run and make an offering to Balaam Ishtar. And thank Balaam Ishtar for the great harvests. So after many years of this, and God sending prophet after prophet, that's when the rain stopped. And when Elijah came on the scene and said, People, who is your God? Choose. And what did they say? How did they answer? Not a word. They didn't want to choose. They wanted it both ways. What do you call having it both ways? Lukewarmness, right? Lukewarm. The church of Laodicea. How does God like the lukewarmness? Not at all. So God simply stopped providing the bounty, and then they were up a creek, weren't they? Literally. Actually, down to the creek. Remember, I just sent them down to the creek. If you've ever been up there in the Moo Croc, you know that creek's a long way away, down a big mountain. Okay, back to the scriptures. Deuteronomy 8, we're up to verse 11. Oh, my. Verse 11. Beware. Is beware a soft, gentle word? It is not. It's a great warning. And this warning is going to go on through verse 17. So we'll read it and then we'll comment. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Well, I have to comment. 
If you tell me you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you will not keep his commandments. You may believe you love the Lord, but how does the Lord judge? That you don't. All those in Matthew 7 that are on the broad road leading to, destruct, to destruction think they're on the road to heaven. And they're wrong. What does that word by in verse 11 mean? It means that this is how God judges whether you have forgotten him or not. If you have forgotten him, then you don't keep his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. And then the next word is last. What is last? That's an odd word. It's an alternative. An alternative. Hmm. So if you forget the commandment, statutes, and judgments of God, then when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, where did these fields come from? Where did these houses come from? The Lord provided them when he chased out the ites, right? When your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, what's that mean lifted up? Pride. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents. What's a fiery serpent? Are they on fire? No, they're poisonous. Poisonous. And scorpions in thirsty land where there was no water brought you water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end, then you say in your heart, my power and my might, the might of my hand, have gained me this wealth. Oh, so instead of giving praise and thanks to God for his wonderful bounty and mercy, you begin to say, I did it, it was me. Oh my goodness, look at all these red things out here. <laughs> I think they all resolve themselves. Okay, so what's the point of verses 11 to 17? When we keep the commandments of God, we remember God. That's why we do them. He keeps them, they keep God in our memory, they keep Him on our mind, they keep Him on our tongue. We talk about Him, we live it, we talk about it, we share it. Lest we forget it. Let's go to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. 14 to 16. Leviticus 26 verses 14 to 16. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. 
You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you. And it goes on and on. God tells them this before they ever go into the land. They could have been residents of the land of Israel with a descendant of King David on the throne to this day. So what happened? What happened? They forgot the Lord. You know, sin doesn't normally start out nose deep, does it? Normally it starts out just toes deep. Just something on the bottom of your foot. Surely it won't be so bad if I just do this. And then what happens to the conscience is it starts to get, what does the Bible say? Seared. Well, I got away with that. I can get away with this too. Pretty soon you're so mired up you can't move. How do most drug addicts get to be drug addicts? Little at a time, right? The more you do, the more you want. The more you want, the more you do. The more you want and do, the less you think about the consequences. Or care. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 1. After reciting the fact that Israel was only 70 people when they went down into Egypt and came out a huge multitude. Says, therefore you shall love the Lord your God and what? Keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments. Does it say for a little while? Or it says always. But which comes first, the love or the obedience? The love. Look at the verse. You've got to have faith in in order to love. You must love to obey. I had a question. You know, this previous... Uh, 14 through 16 where it says the wicked where you'll flee if you don't keep his commands you'll flee later on is it David that said or in or one of the prophets that said the wicked flee when no one pursued ah uh, yes that's one of the t-shirts or if you've ever seen it it says I thought about going jogging but then the Bible says <laughs> never mind okay yes you're right Deuteronomy 26 Verse 17. I want you to understand what happened in Exodus 19. Israel, including the mixed multitude, all together enter into a covenant with God where they profess their faith and their love for him and say, whatever you command us, we will do. And the next thing they did was to make a golden calf and worship and sacrifice to it. Here in Deuteronomy 26 verse 17, it says, Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. That's a profession of faith, right? And that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. 
Did they? They promised to, but did they? Let's go to Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15. We'll just do 15 to 18, unless I get carried away. C. That C is not a suggestion. I said before you today, life and good, death and evil. Look at your two hands. Life and good's on one, death and evil's on the other. Why would he put one in each hand? Choice. Choice. It's your choice. Yes, the only choices you have. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God. What comes first? The love. To walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in lambs. You cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. So they actually take an oath and a curse before the Lord God and say, we will follow you absolutely 100%. And if we don't, may we be cursed and judged. Then they turn away from God. And then when God sends them into captivity, what do they say to Jeremiah? Yeah, why? What did we do? You remember that? Turn to Jeremiah. Let's look. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 10. And it shall be when you show this people all these words that is the judgment's coming. And they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what's our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? They say that while there are crushes cut in the temple with idols standing in the courts of the temple. Where the people assemble in the temple and bow with their backsides to God as they worship the rising sun and weep for Tammuz. And when Jeremiah says, the Lord's going to bring judgment upon you, they say, why? What do we do? Go to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Why does it concern me today when people walk down the church aisle and make a confession of faith that Jesus is Lord and then don't obey? What does Lord mean? Master, the one we serve. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 1 Kings chapter 2. Let's see, I got a red one out there. Let's see. It says, Jeremiah, what? It was Jeremiah chapter 16, beginning in verse 10. Don't let me get ahead of you. 
First Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That was a conditional promise, right? Starts with an if. What if his own son, Solomon, turns and starts to worship idols. Then the promise has lost its condition. Oh, my, my, my. First Kings 6, verse 12. I want you to correct something in your Bibles. It's not the Bible that's wrong, it's just the translation. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 12. Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I'll perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. Actually, in this translation, they translated that pretty well. We don't have to fix it. Good. Let's go on back to Deuteronomy. Keep, keep saying things. Right. Yeah. Yes, somebody out there said Wayne. Yeah, just for the sake of uh, maybe newbies that come on and listen, um, I remember I used to dwell and think upon why in the world would someone like a king ever turn to worshiping these idols, because we in our modern day don't think of an idol like a something that you stick in your room to worship it, but they were getting power from these idols, they, because Satan was behind it all. Yeah, no, so uh, I, no, I, Solomon wasn't getting power from the idols. Solomon was marrying, he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of these, if not most of them, came from foreign pagan countries. And they brought their idols with them. And their wife, his wives wanted him to worship the idols with them. So he gave in and said, what could that hurt? But wouldn't the wives actually see there's something to these idols? Sort of like uh, when Moses was throwing down the staff and it became a snake. And yet the magicians were doing the same thing up to a certain point. <clears throat> Oh, there are demons behind idols, absolutely. Yeah, he invited demons into the nation, but did the demons give Solomon his power? No, I don't think so. He gave his power to them, yeah, I think that's more like it. So Deuteronomy 8.19 Then it shall be 
if, notice that word if, you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. That word perish means to die or be exterminated. But it, some people would look at this and say, oh, but that's only if I obey Dagon or Baal or Moloch. No, if you're obeying somebody other than God, you are doing wrong. Just go back to the Garden of Eden. God said, don't eat from the tree. Satan said, eat from the tree. It doesn't matter who said eat from the tree. It was actually Eve who told Adam to eat from the tree. Satan tempted Eve, but it was Eve who tempted Adam. It didn't matter that it wasn't the serpent himself. It didn't matter that it wasn't Apollo or Zeus or Dagon or Ishtar or any of those pagan idols and gods. It was simply that they, instead of listening to God, listen to someone else. That's why the Lord makes such a big thing in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7 that the scribes and Pharisees have set aside God's commandments, not all of them, just some, and but replaced them with their man-made commandments. Yes, Rachel? No. Or is it Julie? You guys sound so much alike over go to meeting. I get that. I was always under the impression that when uh, Satan tempted Eve, that uh, Adam was with her. Was he not, like, standing there with her? Nope. Let's go back to Genesis. Yes, sir. Let's go back to Genesis and we will look. And by the way, when we come back, can you go over 18? Because I think we skipped 18. Yep, if we skipped 18, yep, we'll come back and go over it. <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened." And when it goes later in verse 17, Then to Adam he said, the Lord said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I command you, saying you shall not eat of it. And he goes on with the curses. He says to the woman, you listen to the serpent. To Adam he said, you listen to your wife. So let's go back to Deuteronomy, and I hear I missed a verse, so let's go to verse 18. Deuteronomy 8.18, and you shall remember the Lord your God. What's it mean to remember? Does that just mean think about now and then, or does it mean to retell? Retell. Mm -hmm. 
so that nobody ever forgets what the Lord did, how he took us out of Egypt, how he took us through the Red Sea, how he drowned the Egyptian army, how he fed us in the wilderness. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Ah. That he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. But is that referring to spiritual wealth? Wisdom and knowledge? In this case, he's talking about physical wealth. He's just gone over when you've got lots of flocks and lots of houses and lots of cars and lots of airplanes. <laughs> okay. Well, could it not think about you know, Abraham or Abram? You know, Abraham had 300 plus men to go get Lot back when he was taken. Yeah. So isn't that, is that not a wealth that those people left with him to go, you know, follow what God's commandment was, leave your father's house. And he took all these, these people came with him. Yeah. You know, those were his, uh, I guess, tribe or, or, or whatever you want to call it, family, extended family. The servants. That, and he had, they had what they needed as flocks and stuff like that to live off of it. And plus God's blessing. Yeah. You know, and, and leadership. So that's not, I don't think it's limited to just what we conceive of wealth. I would never limit it that way. You know, all I, that we have, all our abilities right. come from God. Right. If you have special skills and knowledges that help out society, yes. we need to thank God for them. Yeah, I agree. Okay, we got to verse 19. Now we're going to verse 20. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, those are all pagan nations, every one of them. So you shall perish. In other words, what? Aren't the children of Israel special? When they walk in the ways of God, they're special. But if they start acting like the pagans, they get treated like the pagans, right? Special chastening. Yeah, special chastening. So as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And again, the book of Hebrews explains why they were disobedient. Go up to Hebrews. They had a special calling. They had a special calling. And their blessings were and their blessings were conditional. And when they chose to break the condition, then instead of blessing, they got curses. curses. Yeah. Does God change? Nope. No. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, tell us why they were disobedient. It says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So what caused their disobedience? Their lack of faith. They did not believe that God would actually judge them and punish them. You know what? They were wrong. Wayne? Yes? That also applied to the Gentile pagan nations that they were driven out of their land because they did not obey. Right. God's not a respecter of persons. If you love him with all your heart, he will bless you. If you turn away from him, he will judge you. Doesn't matter who you are. 
What did Paul say in the New Testament? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Yes, Through the centuries, these people. God said at the beginning at, at Mount Sinai. God said at the beginning Mount Sinai. If you do these things, you will be a special people. If you do these things, you'll be a special people. But they dropped the if. Then they, we yeah. are a special people. We can do whatever. Yep, they dropped the if. They said we're a special people. We can do whatever. <laughs> but you know what? We find the same thing in the New Testament. God says to the believers, if. Yeah, it, it seems to be that quite often we forget the the if if you do these things. Yeah. So you do them. All right. Now I'm doing it. I'm special, and so I don't have to do it anymore. That's circular thinking. I think. Like yeah. You might call it or something. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, I think that's where the doc, man's doctrine of just I believe I'm saved. So therefore I'm saved. I don't have to stop. I don't have to change anything. Right. So on to chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel. Two things I want you to know. First, that word here is a command. It's a command. It means to stop and listen and obey. And second, there is no O. That's just there to make it sound nice. Mm -hmm. It's here, Israel. You are to cross over. It does not say to cross over. It says you are crossing over. You're crossing over. These are just the last couple days before they actually stick their feet into the waters of the Jordan River at parts and they go into the promised land. So Moses is already saying you're crossing over. The Jordan today. And go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. How much do you want to bet the children of Israel are going, Hey Moses, this isn't what we want to hear. We want to hear their little dinky cities with, with wood fences that will fall down easily. But he says, oh no, these nations are greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall. The descendants of the Anakim. What do you know about the Anakim? They're giants. Whom you know and of whom you heard it said. Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Go back to Deuteronomy 1 verse 28. This is how Moses opened Deuteronomy. Is remember when you sent the spies in, they came back and said, we can't take the land because there's giants there. Those are the Anakim. Deuteronomy 128. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim here. So back to chapter 9, verse 2. Moses says those things are all still true. The people are still taller than you. They still have the giants, the descendants of the Anakim. They're great, mighty, powerful nations. They have huge fortresses. But what is that to God? 
nothing. So since the spies have spied out the land and we come to the book of Deuteronomy in between, God is taking care of the two giant kings named Sihon and Og. And Israel has seen how easily God defeated those nations. So they should now have no concern, no question about whether God can do this or not. So verse 3 says, Therefore, understand today, as opposed to when you went up and spied out the land of the book of Numbers, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. In other words, who's going to defeat the Anakim? God is, yeah. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Go to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. Did God keep his promise? Let's read it. Joshua 11, verses 21 to 22. Yes, it sounds like that consuming fire was judgment on those pagan nations. That's exactly what it was. Fire in prophecy always pictures judgment. Remember, God had told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 that the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete. So the children of Israel had to be strangers in a strange land until God had to judge these Amorites. You're right. Joshua 11, verses 21 to 22. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains. From Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, Goth, and in Ashdod. That city of Goth. Do you know any giants from Goth? Goliath. Goliath. So the Anakim have been destroyed from the land given to the children of Israel, but they still remain in Gaza, Goth, and in Ashdod. Why do you think God let them remain there? Do you think it was so little bitty shepherd boy David could walk up against one of the giants and show the children of Israel what faith means? Yeah. Go to Joshua 14, verses 12 to 15. Who was one of the 12 spies who said, we absolutely can go take it? Caleb. Caleb. What land did God promise to Caleb? Hebron. Hebron. Where were the Anakim? Hebron. Caleb said, hey, no problem, leave them to me. <laughs> Joshua 14, starting in verse 12. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you have heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord has said. Faith. Faith. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance and Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriat Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. So the greatest, the most giant of the giants was Anak, who lived at Hebron. And Caleb says, I don't care. I got this. The Lord said, I can have it. No problem. I got it. He was old, yeah. But what does that matter to God? Not a whit. I've long said God plus one is a majority and God didn't need the one. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 9. We're up to verse 4. Do not think in your heart. Literally it says do not say in your heart. After the Lord your God has cast him out from before you saying... Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So he says, it's not your righteousness, but why did you say judgment? But it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. What does wickedness mean? Lawlessness. But these are Gentiles. I thought the law didn't apply to them. Well, they're about to find out it most certainly does. Right? Yeah, it literally says in verse 4, do not say in your heart. The word is amar. And that word wickedness, I want to look at it, the wickedness of these nations. The Hebrew word is rasha, R-A-S-H-A. Hebrew word 7563. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 23. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23. Time for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in verse 23, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous? Who did he mean by the righteous? Lot. With the wicked. Who were the wicked? <laughs> the wicked were the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah that were in such sin before the Lord our God. How do we know that the Lord considered it sin? Because the scripture clearly says sin is not imputed when there is no law. How do we know they were sinning in God's eyes? Look up at verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave. Sin is lawlessness. Did they have an excuse because, well, we didn't have a Torah scroll? The answer is no. So it's going back to verse 24. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous, that's Lot and his family, with the wicked. That's the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that the righteous should be as or like the wicked. The word like and as is the same word in Hebrew. 
Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So God is being very clear that the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God have always applied, and they've always applied to all people. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 11. Looking at the same word, rasha. Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 5. Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 5. The righteousness of the blameless, that Hebrew word is tamim, it means without spot or blemish, will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. What brings God's judgment? His own wickedness, the wickedness of the wicked. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 9, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. What do you think that means? That the wicked are going to walk in the dark, or the wickedness are going to get cast into everlasting darkness? Isaiah chapter 11. The lexicon I looked at yesterday had kind of a funny to me comment in it. They said that word Russia is rarely applied to the Gentiles. Really? Rarely. How many times does God have to apply it before we know it applies? Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay whom? The wicked. The rasha. Ha-rasha. What if the wicked don't want to get slain? Then they repent. That's right. They stop being the wicked. They become the righteous. Does God permit even the wicked to repent? Yes. yes, he does. In fact, he calls them to repent. Isaiah 13. Yes, God makes clear that we understand that kings are as subject to the commandments of God as the rest of us. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11. I want you to notice this is a promise of God. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Does that sound like the judgments only upon Israel? No. When he says in verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. It doesn't mean what nation they're in or where they come from. You will either 
turn to the Lord or not. Does the scripture say, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord? So that means any nation is free to worship the Lord our God. But God never sent a prophet to another nation than Israel, right? How about Jonah sent to Nineveh? That's right. And he preached repentance. And what did they do? They repented. Ezekiel 18. I'll keep a finger in Ezekiel 18. There's something that's just bubbling up and I can't put it back down. I heard a well-known prophecy teacher this week say that when the rapture and the resurrection comes, the church is taken out of here and Gentiles can no longer be saved. It's only Jews that can be saved in the tribulation period. Is that what your Bible says? Turn to Revelation and let's look. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 13. Well, we'll start in 9 so we know who verse 13 is about. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of what? All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They got saved during the tribulation period, and they were from where? All nations, tribes, people, and tongues. So when you hear people say things like that, just go, nah, that's not what my Bible says, and go on. Where, where, what was that re- revelation? Seven, it's chapter 7. 7, 13. 13. Yeah. 7, 9. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah, we looked at both. But that was all in Revelation 7. Okay, back to Ezekiel. I'm off my... So box now. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 27. We said, what does a wicked man do if he doesn't want to be slain by the Lord? Verse 26 says, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it's because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed, that's called repentance, and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. So the Bible's very clear. You want to die? Walk in sin. You want to live? Repent. And Ezekiel 18 from verses 19 to the end are all about If you don't like where you are, change your mind. If you're righteous and you'd rather burn in hell, well, just turn and start sinning. If you'd rather not, then turn from the wickedness, turn to righteousness. And with righteousness comes eternal life. Ezekiel chapter 33, since we're here anyway. Ezekiel 33 verse 19. 
What does Isaiah 66 say about the one who's having the ham sandwich when the Lord returns? They will be slain. Ezekiel 33:19. I just thought I'd throw that in while you were turning anyway. When the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. This is a section where Israel is saying, God, you're not fair. We should be allowed to sin all we want to sin and get blessed anyway. And God says, it's not me that's not fair. All you have to do if you want to live is repent and turn back to God and do what's lawful and right. They say, but we shouldn't have to do that. We should be able to be saved and walk in sin. And what does God say? Look at verse 11 of 33. Say them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? How many times does God say turn in that one verse? Three times. Are those suggestions? No, the Hebrew word is shuvu. It's a command form. Wayne. Yes, sir. It seems to me that the, the, the disputes about whether one can or can't, in quotes, lose salvation, uh, I think you can choose to walk away from salvation. I agree. It's not what saved, always saved, because of that bit in Ezekiel. It's very very clear if you choose you may have been righteous but if you then choose to go into lawlessness all your righteousness before won't count that's and what that it says doesn't very it plain. you're right it's very plain so you you i think when people's worrying about losing their salvation it, it if it's coming from anxiety that's a situation when I say, no, you cannot lose it as if it's dropped out of your pocket somewhere. It cannot be taken away from you. But if you choose, you have free will. If you choose to walk away from God, then I'm not going to say you're, you have salvation. I agree with you 100%, Edmund. Thank you for adding those comments. Let's go to Malachi. Mr. Wayne. Yes, ma'am. So sorry, I have a yabut. Yeah, Go ahead, yabut. Yeah, <laughs> we think about those nations that came under the judgment that did not know his word, that they were equally accountable for their iniquity, for their sin. And yet we know that they didn't have necessarily the Torah, something to tell them what their sin is. And yet I also recall that nature testifies of him. Right. How do we reconcile the, the ideas that those that, even though nature says there's a God, that say they will be accountable in the day of judgment for thinking that eating swine was okay? Does that make sense? Nope, I didn't quite follow. They don't follow. have the specifics, even though they... Yeah, they don't have the specifics of the law, even though they know there is a God, but yet... You know, if I know we need to repent, but how do we repent from things that we don't necessarily understand the specifics? 
let's just I know our heart is, a, yep. is an indicator but i know the heart is fickle yep let's leave that to god to judge people on how they get judged but we know better don't we so let's worry about what yeah. we're going to do and how we're going to stand before the lord Wayne, do you think there might be a, just a pointer, I'm not going to build a doctrine on it, but there might be a pointer in where Jesus says to those who know what to do and don't do it, they'll be beaten with many strokes. Those that don't know what to do and, and have some things where they go wrong, that'll be lesser. Yeah. That might be a pointer in the direction God yeah. will require of you uh, at certain levels, if you're only a child, he's not going to expect the same amount that he would of an adult. And I think there might be right. parallels there. Right. And if we look at places like Sodom and Gomorrah, how many generations are we removed from the flood? Just a few generations. And Shem himself is still alive when Abraham is born. And they overlap. I'm not sure even that Shem may not outlive Abraham. If not, they come very close to the same. So there are people alive in the world at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah that knew exactly what God required, and they chose to turn away. Every time God reveals himself to the whole world, like in the garden, like at Noah's Ark, then people make a choice. I'm not going to follow God anyway. So I'll leave leave judgment to God and worry about those of us in here who do know. So Malachi 3.18 Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. And God did not leave us to wonder what he means by the righteous and the wicked. But look at the next sentence. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Which is the righteous one? God. One who serves God. And the wicked? The one who does not serve God. Does that say that there's not a third category? There's not a third category. Is that reflected for us in the book of John? Let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 16, everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. People look at that and go, all I have to do is believe. That's right. But if you truly believe, then what happens to your conduct? You repent and it changes. If you don't, then God says it's because you do not believe. Is there a differentiation between using believing in 
and believing on? Not really, because it's the same Hebrew word. Okay. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, we're up to verse 5, except I've got two red circles. Let's see what they are. Yep. Somebody says, if salvation is the goal, and it is, then you can choose to stop before you get to the end of the race. Yeah, if you remember, Daniel taught on that very subject not very long ago, and we talked about it again last night. Why does Paul keep saying you must finish the race? Nobody who quits the race wins the prize. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Again, the Lord says, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, then that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as he's saying here, it's not that you're righteous, but they're worse. And there comes the point that God God claims just that little land we call today Israel out of all the earth. He claims that is his. And he will not allow that to be occupied by those who hate him and worship gods that are not gods. So the Amorites have gotten so wicked that God will throw them out of the land. I almost said vomit them out of the land because that's the term used in Revelation 3. And it's a warning to Israel that if you get as wicked as they, what will God do to you? We'll throw you out too. That's exactly right. Let's go back to Genesis 15. This is what God said to Abraham in the first place. Is that he would not drive out the Amorites until their sin was so bad, he could not tolerate them in the land. Genesis chapter 15 verses 12 to 16. Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 16. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, that is the Lord, said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they'll afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity, meaning the lawlessness of the Amorites, is not yet complete. So God is casting out the Amorites for their lawlessness. Whether they have a copy of the Torah scroll or not, God holds them responsible for breaking his commandments, statutes, and his judgments. That word iniquity is the Hebrew word avon. Don't you think that's a strange name for a cosmetic company, Avon Calling? They're telling you they're selling sin. I don't know. Well, never mind that. Maybe they're sin seer. <laughs> oh, that's really bad. Okay. So that word avon means sin. Go to Genesis 19 where they mistranslate 
the Bible. Genesis 19.15 When the morning dawned, and the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. You see that? It's not the word punishment. The word is avon in verse 15, Genesis 19:15. Lest you be consumed in the sin of the city. In Exodus 20, verse 5, also uses this word avon. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, that is the carved images, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity. That's avon, that is sin. Exodus 20, verse 5. Visiting the sin of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 6. Which begins with a therefore. Therefore what? Therefore, you cannot let yourselves de degrade into the same kind of wickedness. Verse 6, Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means what? Rebellious, stubborn. Rebellious, stubborn. Refuse to repent. You refuse to follow God's way. Now understand, they saw the pillar of fire on Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of God himself. The mountain shook, it burned, they were terrified. Did they believe there was a God? Of course they did. Did they obey God? They did not. So people say, well they believe there was a God, that's faith. No, not according to God. If they had true faith, they would have been obedient. So verse 6 is a threat that's not all that veiled. It's a warning that you must repent to keep residing in the land. You cannot continue your rebellious, sinful ways and expect God to leave you in this special land. Go to Exodus 34, 24. Exodus 34, 24. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 23 because that's where I put the starting bracket. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. 
What are those three times? The Passover season, the Feast of Weeks season, and the Feast of Tabernacles season. It says, For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So what does it mean to God when we keep the feasts and festivals? Is to acknowledge what? That he is our God. Just like the Sabbath is the sign that we're the children of the true and living God, so the feasts and festivals show that he is our God. He's the one we worship. He's the one we serve. And the usual Hebrew word for serve is what? Avad. Work. The one we do what he tells us. That's what it means to serve. That's what it means to worship. Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... We also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the what? And the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is it that would keep us from finishing the race according to this verse? Sin. Sin wants us to get off the track. It wants us to turn to the right hand or to the left. Sin wants us to say, who is God to tell us what we should do? My body, right? I'll do with it as I want. Back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 9. Verse 7. Remember. Why do you think they put an exclamation mark after remember? Because it's a command form. It's not a suggestion. It's a command from God. Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Why? Because what about those who forget history? They're doomed to repeat it. So keep in mind how you sinned in the wilderness and God judged you for it. Did you like it? No. Do you want to repeat it? No. He says, from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt till you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So what does he want them to do? Repent. Go back to Deuteronomy 1, verses 32 to 40. Moses doesn't keep bringing up their failures because he wants them to feel bad. He brings up their failures because he doesn't want them to repeat them. Verses 32 to 40. Yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God. So what caused their sin and their failure in the wilderness? A lack of faith. 
who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go, in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land in which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. For the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, Even you shall not go in there. Joshua the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Sea of Reeds, the Yam Suf. Our English Bible says the Red Sea for some reason. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 9, 7. What is God trying to tell us? That the children of Israel, who in Exodus 19 said, we enter your covenant, we want you to be God. Whatever you tell us we will do, we'll do it. But they didn't. What are those empty words worth? Nothing. Back to Deuteronomy 9, as we're down to just a couple minutes. Verse 8. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. What's that talking about? The golden calf. Let's go to Exodus 32. Pop quiz. Was the golden calf before or after they heard the voice of God himself? After. After they saw the fire on the mountain. After they saw the mountain shake. After they heard the voice of God with their own ears. Exodus 32 verse 1. Now people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. Why did he delay? He fasted for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up by the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which are in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then he rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Who were they sacrificing to? the bull, the golden calf. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down. For your people whom you brought up by the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. 
that have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. What, did we just read in Exodus chapter 20 about not making images? Not bowing down to them? How long ago was that? Less than 40 days and 40 nights. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Indeed, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And I'll make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power with a mighty hand? How can Moses say that? Because Moses doesn't know about the golden calf yet. He thinks the people are down there being nice and worshipful of God. After all, they promised to, right? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. But if you actually go back and look at the Hebrew, it's which he might do to his people. He wanted to know whether Moses would get lifted up in pride and say, yeah, yeah, Lord, wipe them out and start over with me. Or, or could he have been more concerned about God's honor in the eyes of the rest of the world? I'm sure it was that, too. Like you just said, you know, read there. Yep, I'm sure he's concerned about the honor of God's name. But we're out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9. As we go to the Lord in prayer, and for those who are wondering, yes, there is Hebrew class today. God bless you.